Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Can cryptography make our society more secure? This is a question that we hope to answer today on Future Hindsight with our guest, mathematician and computer scientist Shafi Goldwasser. She is the director of the Simons Institute for the Theory of Computing at Berkeley, as well as the RSA Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Massachusetts Institute for Technology in Cambridge, or MIT. She's also the Professor of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics at Weizmann Institute in Israel. Her most notable work is in cryptography and zero-knowledge proof. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with some basic questions. What is cryptography and what is encryption? What is the difference between the two? So cryptography is a name that encompasses the field that worries about the privacy and correctness of information and computation. Uh, Classically, before the rise of the internet, before 1976, cryptography really meant just encryption. So um, encryption is, in its simplest form, the following. You have two parties, let's say Alice and Bob. You can think of them as two governments or two spies that belong to the same government. And they want to send each other messages over an insecure line. And they want to do it in such a way that if somebody interrupts those messages, they can't tell what they meant to send. So the encryption is a way to take your plain message and to transform it into something that's called an encrypted message so that Alice knows what she sends, Bob can figure out what she sent, but someone on the line or someone who interrupts it cannot. So that's encryption. Encryption is one of the methods of cryptography. Today, cryptography includes a lot more than encryption. For example? In addition to sending messages in a secure way, you want to make sure that if Alice sent a message to Bob, that Bob knows that it wasn't replaced in the middle by someone else. So you want to, uh, to have authenticity. So there is a way to attach, in some sense, to that message some proof or some evidence to the fact that it really came from Alice and no one else. We call these things uh, digital signatures. These messages that I'm talking about, they are essentially transmitted by computers and uh, in a digital fashion. And a digital signature, if you think about it, is a way to sign that message. So these days we think about us signing checks or signing documents. And we have some, you know, touchy-feely idea of why we can recognize it was signed by me rather than someone else. When we talk about a digital signature, what we mean is, uh, let's say your email or the message you're sending, a file, a document, and to transform it in such a way that it's now signed by me. So a signed document would be the document attached with something else, which is a function, to use a mathematical term, of that document and something in my personal signature. So every document signed by me or by you, Mila, has a different signature. So it's not that my signature, Shafi, looks the same on, on two different documents. It's going to look different on different documents because it's both dependent on my signature and the document. And the reason to do that is because just think about it. If it was just taking my file and attaching my document to it and sending it online, someone along the way could just kind of chop off my document and put something else, and then someone would think that I signed. So that's one example, digital signatures, which is also in the realm of cryptography, but it's not about encryption. It's not about privacy, it's about authenticity. So another thing we could do is, uh, in this new world where we talk about data and how data is driving everything, right, uh, or will drive everything in the future, and the fact that people are collecting more and more data about how we drive or how we use energy, means that we can do it better, more efficiently. So what does this have to do with cryptography? Sometimes the type of information that we're computing on 
you know, like where I drive and where you drive, or my medical information, your medical information, is something we don't want to share with each other. But it would be useful to have access to all of that information because it would allow driving better, allow developing the right drugs because they would have a lot more information about what the correlation is between symptoms, age, hereditary information, and uh, disease development. So what cryptography enables you to do, it enables you to compute or to be able to figure out information that's based on all of our aggregate data without looking at our data. Right, so you would keep the privacy. Exactly. So these are sample things which are all within the field of cryptography, but they have nothing to do really with encryption. They are a lot more than encryption. That's a really great explanation. How do we in our modern society use encryption? Or maybe it's better to ask, how does cryptography show up in our daily lives in ways that maybe we don't realize? So cryptography already shows in your daily life when you're using the internet. So you're using email, right? And um, in a sense, you you are assuming that not everybody sees your email, just the person you're sending it to. There's sort of a, an underlying layer of security that goes on. That is privacy, encryption. If you wanted also to add your own layer so that you're even more protected, you can actually encrypt your email. If you think about WhatsApp or Snapchat, several of these uh, applications already provide encryption. And they even say that. It comes up, uh, it says, this is secured by end-to-end encryption. So that's one way. Another way is when you open a browser, let's Safari say, it says that uh, VeriSign or something comes up. It says that there's some authenticity that's provided. Another place is that, you know, we're, we're purchasing things all the time, right, on Amazon or used to be eBay, they believe that I'm the one who's authorizing these purchases and not someone else. So there's some form of uh, authentication that's going on where I identify myself to the site. And that's part of cryptography. What are the dangers of this habit regarding our privacy that, you know, we leave all of our stuff all over the place? So I think we don't even know what we put out there. Right. So if you think about it, privacy concerns is something that's not new. These days, we really are doing everything online, right? We're writing emails. We're keeping files. Some people very nonchalantly use um, these kits that you can buy in the supermarket, you know, or 23andMe kits and give their genetic information because they'd like to find some lost long relatives or have some analysis of what their ethnic origins are. All of these things are out there. They're not in our hands anymore. They're sort of in the hands of whoever it is we gave that information to. Facebook knows who our friends were and... um, you know, Waze knows where we're traveling to, and Google knows our queries. So it's no longer within some sort of limited perimeter of carelessness. It's really out in the world. And a lot can be learned about you. There's a famous case of Netflix. It was called a Netflix challenge or something. Uh, Some students showed that uh, just by ranking films on IMDb or something and uh, ordering films on Netflix, if you could sort of cross-reference those two lists, maybe because you could see which computer they came from, you could identify who the person was, or even without seeing which computer came from. It's just that it's such a small window of when you ranked a film versus when you saw it, and even though you're talking about millions of users around the world, millions and millions, you can narrow it down to you know a single or one out of two. Wow, okay, that's terrifying. Well, it's a great question. You know, you could decide, you know what, it, it is what it is, and we have to get used to this new reality, Or you can decide that you are going to use methods which are available to limit your exposure. Okay, let's talk about that. How can we and how should we protect ourselves? Okay, so first of all, I think that, you know, if we think about the medical domain, 
I advise people to be a little bit more careful about their genetic information. Because really, genetics is very interesting. It's not just a case of giving away your material so that some analysis can be done about what your risk is for one disease or another. You know, Parkinson, Alzheimer, um, schizophrenia, your children's risk. But one is it actually opens risk to your family, and which haven't authorized it. There's so much more information there than we know. So we're actually giving away a lot more than we are aware of. So I would caution people to be careful and to give it to companies that guarantee in some sense that they let you know if they share it or use it in ways that you haven't authorized. Another thing is when you are asked to give permission, let's say when you're using your smartphone and for one app to see what another app receives, you got to be careful about that because some of these applications, they may use your information in a way that you didn't anticipate. So I would actually take a moment to think about what permissions you're giving. But maybe the more important thing is that there are methods like this idea of computing on data that's originated from different people, like my medical file, your medical file, a lot of other people's medical file, or my financial information, or the financial information of an organization, like Google or my bank. So there are ways to share information without giving each other the information. These methods originate from cryptography. They're becoming more and more practical these days to make sure that companies actually use them when they use your information. The government might have to get involved. Or as an individual, you should be pressing your government to be involved, or you should be favoring those companies or entities who make a conscious effort and publicly make that effort to utilize these methods and don't just ignore it. If companies get into trouble because of fiascos having to do with private data, you don't just blindly continue supporting them. So we should all delete our Facebook accounts. I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I say that Facebook should, in some sense, held responsible and figure out what to do. So there's a new law, just um, curiously, coming out of Europe, the EU. It's called GDPR. I don't know if you... Yes, I've heard of it. But talk about it. Let's explain it. The Europeans have been, interestingly, paying much more attention to individual privacy than people have in the U.S., not people, companies or governments. And GDPR is essentially a set of regulations or guidelines that say that whatever um, information that's being released, even if it's in the form of aggregate information where your information is part of this aggregate, has to be done in such a way that you can't isolate an individual's data. The reason that I brought it up in the context of what we were just speaking about before was that if a company does not adhere to these rules, or if they are found not to be compliant, then their penalty is something to do with a percentage of their earnings. How do you penalize, let's say, a company that doesn't adhere? Do you just give them a fine? If you think about the big companies, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples, the huge corporations, a fine is nothing. Right. It doesn't mean anything. But if it's a fine that's related to your earnings, that's something. Right. That's uh, much more significant if you have to give up a percentage of your income. It will definitely change behavior. It's like saying, stand up and pay attention. Now, I'm not saying that their rule is the best rule. Uh, Maybe it could be even stricter. But uh, the idea of saying this rule is coming into effect, if it's EU individuals' data, okay, you have to pay attention. They're only talking about their data. But to the extent that American companies take advantage of that data or sell them software, 
they're going to have to take notice. Interesting. So you just said that maybe it could be stricter. What is possible and what should we really be asking for? So there's theory, there's practice, there's what we should ask for. In theory, the field of cryptography has really made amazing strides. So there are incredible theoretical results which tell you that you could have platforms where companies, individuals, entities, governments can collaborate in such a way that they will be able to harvest the information they want without sharing data. So there are theoretical results that show you exactly how to do it, what we call algorithms. There's, you can write programs that implement it. Now, practice is something different. When we say practice, we say we want it to be efficient. We want it to be not too complicated so there won't be too many computer bugs right, that are introduced in the process of introducing such systems. But mostly that we want it to be efficient. A lot of this theory was developed you know, in the 80s and the 90s Today, there are companies popping up or academic institutions or research institutions that are trying to transition that theory to practice. It means you take a particular computation, let's say having to do with energy or finance institutes or medical information, and you see exactly what that information that you want to harvest is or what is the program that you want to run on this data which is not held by one party but by different entities. And then you try to make the earlier methods, the theoretical methods, efficient. So you tweak it so that it's compatible to running it in practice. And what we should do as a public is make sure that these collaborative platforms are put into action. This is one thing. Another thing is our listeners have heard about the promise of AI, right? Mm -hmm. Machine learning, how automation is going to replace a lot of procedures that we use today. You know, people talk about it uh, in the judicial system you know, deciding bail or where to police. They talk about medicine, obviously, like in an emergency room, who should be treated first and what is the protocol. All of this will be done by algorithms. You know, you'll input to it all the features or the attributes. And somehow, instead of thinking about it and using judgment, they'll run a computer program and the programmer will say, this is what you should do. So what does this have to do with cryptography? A lot, because... Of three things. You want to hear all of them? Yes. Please tell us. <laughs> okay. Or at least three things I can think of. Okay. One is, we call this a model. Okay. So there's a model or an algorithm that was created by someone who's, who the judicial system is employed or the hospital or the financial institutions. This model is going to make the decisions in the future. When I say word model, I mean this algorithm model that's going to make the decisions later on for you as an individual is data driven. What does that mean? It takes data that's been collected about cases of the past. Again, in the judicial case, it would be cases of criminals or suspects who were set out on bail and whether they actually committed a crime or they were a flight risk. So they take all this data and then they make a model that predicts what would have been the right decision. And then now the model is decided on and then you come with your profile and then they make a decision about you. So how is this data collected? It's collected by data from a lot of individuals. So one question is how to make sure that, first of all, one can collect data without actually looking at it. So you want to be able to collect encrypted data and still be able to come up with good models. So that's one place where cryptography comes in to this promise of machine learning. Two, uh, the model itself, after it's taken your information, you want to make sure that just by using this model, people aren't going to be able to reverse engineer it and figure out what Mila's information was. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing. A third thing, uh, this whole AI thing has the promise of, if you think about medicine, say that in some, you live in some rural area where there isn't a really great medical center and you want to get advice of how to treat a patient. 
So uh, you want some hospital in New York or San Francisco or wherever to, you want to use their model. Uh, you want to make sure, again, that you are able to use your data, which is encrypted, uh, give it to that hospital and for them to give you back advice. You see what I'm saying? So these yes. are three different things. One is you want to protect the model. One is you want to protect uh, your own information that's using the model. And three is you want to make sure that when the, the time when the model is created, it's created based on data that itself is protected. Right. I mean, this was too much detail. No, no, no. I saw a short video of you for the Hamilton lecture in 2016. And oh. you talked about the fact of aggregating basically the underlying data of people's genetics yeah. without revealing who they are. Right. Uh, <clears throat> but you can still crunch the numbers and you can still do the analysis, right? right. Which right. is really exciting. We are only going to become more data-driven. I have a question that may that you may not be able to answer, but... What if the data is faulty? So, for example, you talked about bail uh, and the prison system. You know, with the practices in the United States over the last 30 years, let's say, in mass incarceration, and for many of them, they became, in fact, hardened criminals in prison. So it didn't have the outcome that they wanted, and therefore recidivism is basically rampant in that population. How reliable is it to use that data in order to predict what will happen in an algorithm? That's a very good question. So what you're talking about is sort of data bias. The data sets yes. we're using is biased. It's a very good point. But there's even a different concern, which is even when the data, you say, well, biased or not, that's the data we have, and let's use it to try to predict Okay, so the prediction is not necessarily whether they were given bail, but how they acted when they were out on bail. Mm -hmm. But of course, it is affected by the fact that there is a lot more uh, incarcerations in different racial groups, and, and, and that will affect it. If you restrict to certain racial groups, right, they might not predict as well on African Americans as they do on whites, in the sense that they might be more inclined to penalize an African American than white person and these things have been shown mm -hmm. so the algorithms are not even fair even if they even with respect to the data as is right so this is called algorithmic fairness and it's a very very hot topic right now how do you define it i mean because what's an underrepresented group is it just the ones that we know of is it other groups how do you make sure that it's fair to them how do you make sure that it's fair and still prediction is is done well overall uh, but another thing is you mentioned the word faulty data. It's not just faulty in terms of bias, but it could be even poisoned. So you can imagine in the future but that once people figure out what algorithms are used, they're going to sort of tweak their data mm -hmm. to get the right outcome. Right, right. Yeah. So cryptography does actually have something to do with this. So surprisingly, even though fairness and data bias doesn't seem to be related, there's uh, methods that have been developed uh, in data privacy, some things called differential privacy, which even though their intent was privacy, it turns out that the same techniques have something to say about fairness in terms of how the algorithm outcome won't be unfair to groups. If an algorithm is private, in some sense, its decisions don't tell you too much about the individuals that were a part of the data set. And that means that they are a little less sensitive to specific individuals. So in some sense, by not being sensitive to individuals, it would mean that they won't be able to uh, discriminate against them because they don't even notice them. Very intuitive. Right. But mathematically speaking, there are methods from the realm of cryptography and privacy that are actually relevant to the question that you asked about data bias. 
So when I asked the question at the beginning, can cryptography make our society more secure? It sounds like cryptography can at the very least make our society more fair. I think that more secure, it will be easier than more fair. <laughs> Because we already know that we can do encryption, we can do authentication, we can do this uh, collaborative platforms without revealing privacy. Okay, this is already methods that exist out there and actually are getting more and more practical by the day. But fairness is a new issue. Let's talk about zero knowledge. Can you explain what it is and, and how it relates to the issue that we just discussed? Sure. Okay, so uh, zero knowledge is a concept that came up in the sort of mid-80s. And uh, some work with uh, my collaborators and I. And um, we, uh, at the time, were really just young researchers who were kind of intrigued by this idea that you can convince someone of a fact. And when I say convince of a fact, it's really colloquial speak for prove a mathematical th- fact, okay, mm-hmm. in a different way than we used to. So people usually, when they think about proving mathematical fact, they go back to their high school education, geometry. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to prove that um, a triangle, you know, is 180 degrees. Right. And uh, you learn math, you learn geometry, you write down, you know, a fact, you support it by an axiom, and you keep going, and then eventually you have proved it. This is what traditional mathematical theorems are like. You know, you write them down in a book, you read line by line, and then it, you say, I, I accept. But these new proofs had this flavor of an interactive flavor where, uh, in a sense, there was someone who was proving and someone who was, was checking the proof. And the way that the prover was proving to the checker or the verifier was by essentially a dialogue where the checker was asking questions and the prover was answering. They were going back and forth. And if all the answers were correct or to your satisfaction as a checker, then you say, I accept. Now, what that enabled... was that it was no longer the case that you wrote it down in a book, and it was no longer the case that these proofs were transferable. So usually, if I wrote to you my math proof in geometry, you can go and publish it in a book. From now on, you know as much as I do. But in these interactive methods, if I was the prover and you were the checker, and now someone else said to you, hey, can you prove me this uh, fact that you just were convinced of? You won't be able to. Mm-hmm. Because you were convinced that I could answer your questions. But they're going to ask you different questions. Right. So zero knowledge is a way to convince someone that something is true without giving them the ability to convince someone else. And it's even much more stricter than that. You can sort of formally define that they've learned nothing, like zero, <laughs> right. except that the fact is true. Right. So now this seems very abstract. Why would one want to prove mathematical theorems or... statements in geometry, in zero knowledge. <laughs> yes. But that's where we bring it back to the world, okay? Okay. So let's think about simple examples. So the simple example people always talk about is preventing identity theft. Mm-hmm. So say I want to prove that I'm Shafi and I want to do it over the internet. If I just send my password, it can be encrypted, I guess, and you, on the other hand, it might be Amazon, you can decrypt it and see if it's my password, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you would have to have as Amazon database of passwords. So to compare my password against. But we know there's a lot of break-ins, right? And right. there might be even inside people that you don't trust. So is there any way that I can convince Amazon or a third party that I'm Shafi without actually them knowing my password? So what zero knowledge would be would be a way for me to sort of prove to them who I am, 
let's say that from now on I'm identified with being able to prove some math theorem. Okay. Okay. It sounds crazy. Like, why would people know how to prove math theorems? But these are sort of theorems that are sort of manufactured almost in some sense for per person. Mm-hmm. And they each n- know a proof in the sense that their smart card knows a proof or their bank card. Okay. okay. And when you log in, the other side, Amazon or whoever that checker is, go through a quick protocol to check that you know the proof. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to be one of these zero-knowledge proofs, they can do it in such a way that they could really, without beyond reasonable doubt, they will, you know, with significantly high probability will be convinced that I'm Shafi, mm-hmm. but uh, they themselves wouldn't be able to pretend to be me, mm-hmm. and you don't have any information stored locally. Another application has to do with accountability. So what zero-knowledge proofs would enable you is a way, in some sense, for an organization to prove that they are adhering to a law mm-hmm. or to a regulation without telling you what they're doing. So again, if you think about it, there is a fact that they want to prove, and that is, let's say that there's a set of regulation, we could write them down as rules in a way that a computer can read them. And then there is a decision made that's supposed to be consistent with these rules. So you could imagine that it would be an automated thing that enables you to check that a decision is consistent with a set of rules. And now you want to do all that privately. Mm-hmm. So you sort of encrypt the decision, encrypt the rules, and in zero knowledge, prove that the two are consistent. That's a fact that can be checked by a computer mm-hmm. and can be checked in a zero knowledge fashion because we know how to do zero knowledge proofs. So does that mean that zero knowledge proof is a form of encryption to protect us from having to reveal information that we don't want to share, but we can still prove that we are in compliance of things that are demanded of us? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that zero knowledge is a form of encryption. It allows you to verify claims in a way that doesn't compromise the claim and the information that is necessary in order to prove that I'm compliant. The realm of zero knowledge is verification. You can verify that someone has been compliant, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Not what they've But done. But not how. Not how they've done it not details of the transactions that they've been involved in or how much money they've passed and so forth. Depends what the application is. But you can verify that they were compliant, that they were consistent using a zero-knowledge method. It's linked back to privacy, right? Or Yeah, which is, let's link it back to privacy. Yeah, you are keeping the details of the transaction confidential. Let's say I bought a piece of equipment, a car, and I serviced it in a whole bunch of garages around the country because I was driving cross-country. And by the time I get from the East Coast to the West Coast, the car has depreciated. But I have serviced it. So there's a whole bunch of transactions that happen to this car, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't want you to know, and I get to the West Coast, and I want to sell it. I go to a dealer, and I could give them all the paperwork of servicing the car. Mm-hmm. But maybe I don't want the dealer to know everywhere I've been. I want to be able to prove to them the car is worth what I claim. Mm-hmm. So I could somehow, in zero knowledge... Uh, show them that, you know, I've gone through all this servicing and the car's worth is still above a certain amount of money. What is, in your mind, the most exciting work happening today that uh, addresses issues of privacy and verification and authenticity going forward for everyday people? Well, I think that it's a combination of this multi-party platform and a particular form of encryption, which is called homomorphic encryption, which is essentially a way to encrypt data uh, in such a way that you can actually process the encryption. You don't have to decrypt first and find out 
the plain data and then comp computing on it, but you can compute on it in encrypted form, um, which means that you can, in some sense, have all your data encrypted and have still computations done on it without having to decrypt it. So it all goes back to this idea of processing your data without actually looking at it. Here are my two last questions. They're interlinked. Okay. How should we think about digital privacy in the future? And what are the most important questions we should be asking about what's possible? I think the way we should think about digital privacy in the future is that it's very much a topic that we must pay attention to. And we cannot just assume everything is going to be okay. Because of recent events, because the commercial promise that it has, because the power that it gives people to have access to your data. There are methods out there that can make our life reasonable. We can take advantage of the fact that there's great data out there without losing our sort of basic right to be left alone. So there's mm -hmm. this famous quote of Judge Brandeis, which apparently came out when cameras were taken out of studios. All of a sudden, you could walk around with a camera and take pictures of people in the street. And he said, well, what about our basic right to be left alone? Can you imagine today? We want to maintain that. So obviously, we're not going to be able to maintain that completely because we also want to make progress, right? Right. We want to have better medicine, and we want to be able to have surveillance in case of criminals and terror. And we want to be able to use energy in a smart way and route traffic and have self-driving cars. But we have the methods, and we have to use them. Yes, indeed we do. We have the demand from our public officials to legislate accordingly. And, and also from companies. They have to be made accountable for the fact that we're giving them all that power, we're giving them all this data, they, they need to pay attention to our privacy. They maybe need to let us have control of our data to a larger extent than they do today. That's a fascinating question. Uh, and privately, I wonder if people are really not going to step back and... Maybe they you will. Know. You know, that's like uh, what happens usually, right? Right. It goes too far, the pendulum swings, and then it goes back. But before they started deciding bail and assigning loans and deciding whether your kid goes to school A or school B all by computer algorithms, before it all becomes reality, we should make sure that it's done right to the extent we can. How can we really make sure that, that they're going to do it right? I'm not a policy <laughs> maker, but I think that, you know, computer scientists need to be engaged with lawyers, with policymakers, with people who know how legislation and how legal systems work. And I think it's a very important dialogue and a dialogue that actually in the future I am very excited about to be part of. Yes, you need to be a part of that. Well, Shafi, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Cryptography has the capacity to deliver on the promise of a more secure society, but it will take our collective action to demand it. Our guest, Shafi Goldwasser has done the groundbreaking and innovative research that forms the base of what is possible in cryptography today. As we continue our march into an increasingly digital future, we need to hold companies accountable for using our data only in encrypted form so that we are not vulnerable to exposing our private information. We need to be vigilant with the data that we are willing to share, such as our genetic information. And we also need to advocate for government oversight and regulation to protect our rights as citizens to be left alone. Alongside computer scientists, policymakers, and legislators, we need to participate in the dialogue that will shape our digital privacy. 
At the very least, we now know that collaborative platforms to protect our information already exist. We have the methods. We have to use them. There is no excuse for anything less. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Ian Bremer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group, the leading global political risk research and consulting firm. He is a prolific thought leader, author, and the foreign affairs columnist and editor-at-large at Time magazine. His latest book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, is a New York Times bestseller. Globalism was this idea that free markets and open borders and the U.S. and our allies working to provide global security and maybe even promote democracy, that all of those things would bring us closer together, would eliminate the tribalism and the hatreds that came from it in us versus them. And what we see today in 2018 is nothing could be farther from the truth. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.